Section 13 of Psychotherapy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hilara Psychotherapy by Hugo Munsterberg Chapter 10 The Mental Symptoms Part 3 Even in slight psychasthenic disturbances, the psychotherapeutic influence is not always successful, especially if there is no time for full treatment. But it is very interesting to see how even in such cases, the symptom is somehow changing, almost breaking to pieces. It becomes clear that a protracted effort in the same direction would destroy the trouble completely. Typical is a case like the following. An elderly woman had been troubled her lifelong by a disproportionate fear of thunderstorms with almost hysterical symptoms. As she had no other complaint, I hardly found it worthwhile to enter into a systematic treatment and could not expect much of a change from a short treatment considering that her hysteric response had lasted through half a century. As she begged for some treatment, I brought her into a drowsy state and told her that she would in future enjoy the thunderstorms as noble expressions of nature. The whole procedure took a few minutes. Yet, after some summer months, she wrote me a letter which clearly indicated this characteristic compromise between the habitual dread and the reinforced counter-idea. I have the same sick dread at the sight of thunderclouds that I have always had. But I seem to have gotten somehow a most desperate determination to control my fear. I have done this to the extent of keeping my eyes open and looking at the storm. Is that hypnotism or pride? Another thunderstorm case may lead us to other methods of treatment. Here again, in the field of emotional response, we may consider the methods of going back to primary experience, known or forgotten. A young married woman of the West had suffered, always, from hysterical attacks in response to any sharp sudden impressions, especially sudden loud noises. The banging of a door, but worst of all, a thunderstorm, could produce hours of weeping and crying and desperate mental condition with all expressions of excitement. Her husband wanted me to hypnotize her, but I preferred another way. I tried to get her memory back to the earliest case of which she could think of this hysterical response. As long as we were in ordinary conversation, she could not trace it beyond about her twelfth year. But when I brought her into a drowsy state, her memory revived older experiences and finally settled at a school experience in her seventh year of age. She then had an excitable country school teacher who relied on whipping the children. Once. Her neighbor in the class did something forbidden. Her teacher mistook her for the culprit and began to whip her most forcibly before she could explain anything. And while the punishment was going on and she began to bleed from a wound, she all the time felt that she wanted to express her innocence and could not speak. After that, evidently the first attack of hysteric character followed. From that time on, any sudden impression released the same group of reactions. The suppressed emotion had evidently become a psychophysical complex. As soon as I had reached this starting point of her pathological history, 
I asked her to bring back to consciousness as many details as possible of that first incident. She told me all the names and described the classroom and brought herself vividly into the whole situation. Then I asked her to tell me the whole story once more and to express strongly her innocence and the wrongness of the punishment and when she had completed her account brought out with fullest indignation I had her tell the whole thing once more and then a third and a fourth time until she was quite tired out from it that was all I did very soon after the husband reported that there was a great improvement in every respect no hysteric attacks only slight discomfort most of the stimuli which had previously produced strong reactions now passed without any disturbance and even thunderstorms were experienced with relative ease. A year later they came once more to Cambridge and she simply passed once more through the same process of discharge which seems now to have removed the symptoms still further. By far more reliable however is the method of sight-tracking the starting experience into a more associational track. A gentleman with a decidedly psychasthenic constitution developed a tendency to hesitate in walking on the street. It was not a complete stumbling but a disturbing inhibition which set in when he was walking alone and his attention was not absorbed by something on the street. He believed that it came on most strongly when he looked down at the pavement. He suffered from it vehemently and avoided going on the street alone. He was unable to connect it with any starting point. He interpreted it as merely a symptom of overwork. But going with him through all kinds of experiences which he had had on the street in previous years, we finally found that once he was running to catch a streetcar when he suddenly saw almost immediately before him a big hole dug out for laying gas pipes. He was able to stop himself quickly enough not to fall into the hole but he got a strong emotional shock from the experience. He himself did not think that his walking troubles set in immediately after the shock. Yet, the hypothesis seemed to me sufficiently justified that there existed a connection, even though some weeks lay between that first experience and the first observation of the abnormal inhibition in walking. On that basis, I tried to train a new associative connection. I made him drowsy and asked him to think himself once more into the situation of his run for the car but as soon as he reached the hole to jump over it. He went through this motor feature on 10 successive days with new and ever new energy and from that time up to the present the trouble on the street has disappeared entirely. To mention at least one case of the large group in which suppressed sexual emotion was the evident source of an anxiety neurosis, I mentioned the case of a woman who showed very strong symptoms of anxiety and oppression and who was cured by simple advice. The woman, aged 32, was a saleswoman in a large store selling gentlemen's gloves and ties. She suffered from time to time by attacks of vague anxiety in which her heart showed vehement palpitation. There were paleness and perspiration, and at the height, a nervous trembling together with a feeling of despair. These attacks were not frequent, separated sometimes by weeks, sometimes by months, but troubling her exceedingly. She had been assured by a physician that her heart was normal and that she was probably overworked. 
she could find absolutely no source of the disturbance. After a long conversation, I was also unable to discover any direct or indirect causes until I worked on the basis of those theories which we have discussed, the theories which connect hysteric symptoms with chance intrusions which stand in relations to past suppressed emotions of sexual character. The patient absolutely denied any present sexual emotions. She had been engaged about eight years before and acknowledged that at that time there were strong sexual feelings connected with her fiancé who broke the engagement. Psychoanalytic methods now brought it to full clearness that she had her first attack after selling a pair of gloves and fitting them to the hand of a male customer who had a certain similarity to her fiancé. It was not possible to trace this in the same way for later cases too, but it seems that bodily contact with a man by fitting gloves preceded every attack. All this was brought out partly by questions, partly by free ascending associations, while she herself believed that she simply pronounced nonsense words as they came to her mind, and partly it was secured in a half-hypnotic state. I came to the conclusion that the suppressed sexual emotions at the breaking of the engagement were the primary cause of the disease. The similarity of the first customer, together with the tactual sensations, had evidently touched that complex and brought the suppressed emotion to an explosion which frequently takes the form of palpitation and similar symptoms. Later, the mere tactual sensation alone produced by the contact with the hand of a man possibly with a similar optical impression, perhaps also with the sound of the voice, brought back the reaction. Instead of giving treatment, I insisted that she change stores and become saleswoman in a house where she would have to do only with women and to sell articles which did not bring her into personal contact with customers. After more than six months of work in her new place, she reported that the attacks had not come back again. Of course, it may readily be acknowledged that this method does not allow a sharp demarcation line between its various factors. It cannot be denied that an element of straight suggestion may be included. The man whom I train in the forming of a new antagonistic motor response feels it, of course, all the time, also as a silent suggestion to overcome the old disturbance. It is thus, to a certain degree, impossible to say where the effect of the discharge ends and where that of the hidden suggestion begins. Yet, there certainly cannot be any doubt that this revival of the first experience and its improved discharge works directly towards the removal of the troublesome symptom. Abnormal fear is also the essential factor in most cases of stammering. The patients usually know it themselves. For instance, a lawyer writes to me, I have been a stammerer the greater part of my life and have visited every stammering school in the country, but the relief obtained has been temporary and in most cases I was not benefited at all. I am convinced that stammering is due wholly to an abnormal mental condition which consists of an unreasoning fear that takes possession of the individual when he attempts to utter certain sounds. It is simply a lack of confidence inspired by numberless failures to articulate properly and is not caused by any organic trouble because, taking my own case for example, I can at times talk as fluently and easily as anyone. 
I am firmly convinced that stammering can be cured by hypnotic suggestion. If you could get me in the hypnotic state and suggest to me repeatedly that from thenceforth I would have easy fluent speech, I feel absolutely certain that such would be the case. Or an engineer writes to me, At times I stammer very badly. In an ordinary conversation, it is scarcely perceptible, but it is almost impossible for me to make an explanation or relate an incident or tell an anecdote. I began to stammer when I was about 7 years of age, I am 29 now, and continued until I was 17 when I broke myself of it by reading aloud. It came back on me about a year ago, at which time I was labouring under a very severe nervous strain on account of business matters. I have since tried to break myself of it in the way that I did at first, reading aloud, but have been unable to do so. Can it be cured by hypnotic treatment or suggestion? Can any hypnotist of ordinary ability do it? I should affirm this question, which is one of the most frequent put to the psychotherapist. And yet, if I myself have entirely given up the cure of stammerers in recent years, it was not only because there was little chance to learn anything new scientifically from it, but also because it was ultimately disappointing, as the severe cases cannot be cured entirely. Every hypnotist can quickly secure a strong improvement. In even new cases, I found an almost surprising improvement in the first two weeks, an improvement which stirs up the most vivid hopes of the sufferers. Then the improvement becomes slower and finally it stops before a complete cure is reached. The patient notices it and it easily works back on his emotion and thus begins again to disturb the speech unless a very careful continuous counter-suggestion is given. Slight disturbances, to be sure, can be removed entirely. The essential point will always be to suggest to the stammerer the full belief that he is able to speak every word and that he is able to speak it in every situation. But where there is a limit for improvement, we must take for granted that the disturbing fear is only superadded to an organic trouble. In such cases, probably the inability of certain nervous parts was primarily irreparable. These inabilities then become the source of discomfort and of fear, and this fear added greatly to the disturbance. Hypnotism then quickly removes that part of the disturbance which had been superadded by the mental emotion, but it cannot remove that primary factor, the objective inability, and every cure thus finds its limit there. Near the field of emotions stand also the many varieties of sexual abnormalities and perversities. I abstain from discussing any special cases, but it may be said that suggestive treatment is in this region powerful to an almost surprising degree. Even homosexual tendencies, which go back to the beginnings of the memory of the individual, yield, as my experience shows, in a few weeks. If again the suggestion is not so much directed towards the suppression as to the creation of the antagonistic reaction, that means in this case of the normal sexual desire. Both ideas and emotions, of course, lead to actions. Moreover, we always insisted that the resulting action is an essential part of the psychophysical situation and that every mental experience has to be characterized as a starting point for action. Yet, 
this factor of activity and of attitude sometimes stands in the foreground. The controlling idea is then the idea of an end of action, the predominant emotion, the emotion anticipated from a certain activity. Typical for that are those disturbances in which an abnormal impulse or an abnormal desire awakes perhaps a desire for ruinous drugs like morphine or cocaine or an impulse to criminal deeds like stealing. But the disturbances of the psychomotor factor are not less present when the central complaint is the lack of energy, the most frequent symptom of the neurasthenic. And our whole discussion has made it clear that a mere lack of attention belongs to the same category. Of course, the abnormal impulse is psychophysically not different whether it leads to a legally important result like the impulse to kill or leads to an indifferent result. The subjective suffering may be the same in both cases. The starting point of the impulse may be any chance experience. The psychasthenic may pick up such impulses from any model for imitation or from any haphazard report. It may be entirely freakish and yet beyond conscious control. A physician had read in a well-known book on hysteria about a case in which a girl was troubled by a constant effort to move the big toe in her shoes. This idea worked on him as a suggestion for several months. At my advice, he fought it by auto-suggestion. He brought himself into a slightly drowsy state by staring into a crystal ball and assuring himself by spoken sentences with monotonous repetition for a long while that he has perfectly the power to hold the toe at rest. From the second day, only a slight kinesthetic sensation remained, the movement itself disappeared. Or a more unusual case, a young lady once noticed in a man a different colour in the two eyes. It gave her an uncanny feeling together with a natural impulse to compare the two eyes. Accordingly, she shifted her own eyes from one eyeball to the other in the man's face. The accent which this shifting impulse had received by the disagreeable feeling evidently forced her to repeat this movement with everyone. At first it became half a play, but soon a disturbing habit and finally an intolerable impulse. Whenever she talked with anyone, she lost control of her eyes and was obliged to enter into a kind of pendulum movement from eye to eye. The situation became so unendurable that the thought of suicide began to occur to her. I hypnotized her four times, suggesting to her complete indifference as to the face of those with whom she spoke, and at the same time certain new habits of fixation. The impulse lost its hold, and when I saw her last, it had completely disappeared. By far more frequent than such neutral impulses are the desires, for instance, of the alcoholist. On the whole, it may be said that psychotherapy can gain its easiest triumphs in the field of alcoholism and a wide propagation of psychotherapeutic methods and of a thorough understanding of psychotherapy would be fully justified even if no other field were accessible but that of the desire for alcoholic intemperance. The moral disaster and economic ruin resulting from alcoholic intemperance, the physical harm to the drinker and to his offspring is so enormous and the temporary cure of the victim is so probable that the movement certainly deserves most serious interest. Yet I speak of temporary cure 
and I refer here especially to the restriction with which I introduced the psychotherapeutic methods in general. They do not deal with diseases but with symptoms and they certainly do not deal with constitutions but with results of the cooperation of constitution and circumstances. That the given constitution may be brought anew under conditions which again stir up similar symptoms is always possible. And just with alcoholism, the danger lies near unless beneficial influences remain in power. Certainly no one has a right to neglect such psychotherapeutic aid simply because relapses are possible. Even a temporary relief can be a great blessing. Moreover, the temporary relief is the safest basis to work towards the prevention of a recurrence of the evil. Only in two directions is further restriction needed. Psychotherapeutic methods are, in my opinion, of very small avail in cases of periodic drinkers. Such periodic attacks of patients who have not even a desire for alcohol in intervals between the attacks, intervals which may last a quarter of a year, are related to epilepsy. It seems that constant hypnotic influence during the interval has a certain power to reduce the periodic impulse. I personally have not seen any special improvement from it. The second restriction would be that the drinker has to be under constant supervision during the first days of hypnotic treatment. No patient, not even the morphinist, is so skillful in deceiving his friends and even the physician. Even the most emphatic gestures of sincerity ought to be distrusted. Only a short time ago, I dealt with a young man whom his parents and a chauffeur had accompanied to Boston exclusively for the purpose of watching him constantly while I was to attempt to cure him from excessive whiskey drinking. The chauffeur accompanied him from his room in the Boston Hotel to the threshold of my laboratory. All through the day, he was with his parents, and at the hotel, the management had been given the strictest orders not to sell any drink to the young spendthrift. He was an earlier student of mine and had attached himself to me with such an apparent sincerity as removed every possible doubt of his pledge. Intentionally, I had not even asked him for a pledge not to drink, but only for a pledge to confess to me the next day if he ever should take any alcohol. In a tentative way, I suggested to him in a half-hypnotic state on the first day that he would feel disgust for whiskey. I did not expect much of an improvement before at least three or four treatments. I was therefore most surprised when he most solemnly assured me the next day that he awoke in the morning with an assured feeling that he should never touch whiskey again and that he had not the slightest desire for it. Instead of a systematic development of suggestions, I confined myself, therefore, to a mere repetition of the treatment of the first day, and as every morning the same assurance came forth, there seemed to be no need for any variation. It was not before the fifth day that I discovered that he had taken from the start a pint of whiskey every day. When he first arrived, he had bribed a laundress of the hotel to bring to his room every day the whiskey hidden in the laundry and he drank it during the night. Then I declined any further participation. The danger of deceit is, of course, less imminent when not the family but the patient himself takes the initiative. 
yet even here distrust is wise. The patient has sometimes the most sincere intention to be cured, but under pressure of his craving, he admits compromises which he hides from the physician. Having reduced the large quantity of alcohol to which he was accustomed, he hides the fact that he yet takes a few drinks which he thinks cannot prevent the cure. Yet, inasmuch as a complete cure has to rely on psychical factors, this consciousness of deceiving, even with small transgressions, interferes badly with progress. And inasmuch as the cunningness of the patient is itself a symptom of the disturbance, the strongest possible precaution is advisable at the beginning. For that reason, it is also not best to begin at once with complete prohibition, but to lead to a total abstinence in about one week. But certainly, in the case of every drunkard, total abstinence is the only desirable goal. A pronounced drinker ought never to be transformed simply into a moderate one. The return to intemperance would result rapidly. On the other hand, it would be unfair to deny that psychotherapy has cured the symptom if the desire really once disappeared completely, even if, after years, new temptations develop a new desire. I myself had diphtheria three times in my life. My constitution is thus probably especially favourable to that disease, but I do not estimate less the fact that I was perfectly cured the second time, in spite of the fact that I caught it a few years later a third time. To be sure, such experiences of relapse cannot be spared any psychotherapist. I may give a typical instance. A well-known professional man of 50 years, through a long bachelorhood, was accustomed to close his work at 4 o'clock and then to sit comfortably in his study with a book and an unlimited supply of brandy. He took one cognac after another and every evening he was completely intoxicated. He married a young wife and felt the need of changing his habits the more as he himself saw symptoms of his excess which alarmed him. When he came to me, I saw that he was seriously wishing to give up and he understood himself that there was only the one way, namely complete abstinence. He felt that he could not reach it by his own willpower alone and sought my aid. I hypnotized him six times, suggesting at first a reduction to four drinks, then to two, then to one, and then to pure mineral water. I concentrated my effort on stirring up the antagonistic attitude, the dislike of the smell of brandy, and the aversion to its taste. The effect was excellent. After the fifth time, the mental torture which he had felt in the first afternoons had completely disappeared. I considered further hypnotizing superfluous and felt sure after the sixth time that the man was cured. For about a year he remained abstinent, but in the meantime his professional life brought severe disappointments and with cool consideration he decided that he might have at least some pleasure from life and forget its miseries. Accordingly, after a year, he determined again to take some brandy in his study, and of course, that led rapidly to an increase of the dose, and today he is probably at the old point. And yet it may be said with correctness that psychotherapy had done its duty. If at the right moment, before he took the first step again, even the slightest counter-suggestion had been applied, the disastrous second development could have been easily avoided. End of section 13, recording by Hilara.